0: Lord willing, on September the 9th, we will begin to offer two identical morning worship services beginning at 8 and 1045 in the morning. The proposal of this development has been discussed for a number of years, really, and perhaps the most significant concern voiced by church members along the way is the potential that this will fracture us as a church, that it will compromise the family unity and the fraternal oneness of our assembly. Of all the concerns that might be expressed in the face of this change, this is perhaps the healthiest and the noblest that anyone could express. You cannot lose something that you do not have. And you do not worry about losing something that you do not value. We rejoice to know... That Eden Baptist Church is a spiritual family. And that our relationships as brothers and sisters in Christ comprise a stewardship of utmost importance. In fact, I believe that if we are going to utilize the opportunity of a second service for numerical growth, more importantly, if we are going to glorify Jesus as the Lord of this church, it is essential that we deepen the quality of our relationships as members of this body. Eden Baptist Church, we need to make significant progress in the warmth, in the depth, and breadth of our relationships as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps a tendency for the most of us is to say, yes, that is true. Of course, that will always be the case, but yes, that's true. And then for us to run headlong into an investigation of practical strategies by which we can relate with higher quality to one another and to others outside our church. Practical strategies for encouraging communication, creating opportunities for social interaction, or strategizing to respond better to human needs. Others may respond differently, maybe even, honestly, with a degree of ill-tempered skepticism. You may feel isolated, forgotten, unloved. You believe you're a victim of the failure of others to relate properly to you, and you have no confidence that anything is ever going to change. However we may react to the idea of growing in the depth of our relationships as believers. We all face the temptation to define and to pursue quality relationships on the world's terms. We are programmed by our culture to think in social terms of who is like me and who likes me. But we discover in Scripture a radically different orientation toward human relationships. An entirely different construct by which we must learn to define and to pursue quality relationships. What do such relationships look like? What characterizes them? What motivates them? What is their essential nature according to the counsel of God? This will blow some categories as we settle down into it and think about it clearly, this will reorient some lives. As we studied earlier this morning in the adult class, this will lead perhaps in some lives to the need to repent. That is to reorient the life toward the calling of God. Perhaps no local church leader has ever put The answer to these questions. What does it look like? What is the essential nature of a quality relationship in God's mind? Perhaps no local church leader has ever put a face on that any better than the Apostle Paul. Now, right there, I lost some of you. I think probably in your mind there's a little switch that gets flipped right about that place. I'm not an Apostle Paul. I'm never going to be an Apostle Paul. He spent all of his life going after people, leading them to Christ, nurturing them in the faith. That's not me. That's not who I am, and I'm not going to look to him as an example. Fair enough. To a degree. But I encourage you to remember that Paul was the man he was because he followed the pattern of authentic humanity set by Jesus Christ. We will not be apostles. We do not have exactly his calling on our lives, but we need to follow Paul as he followed Christ. Genuinely, boldly, authentically, humbly, he told the Corinthian church just that. Follow me as I follow Jesus. We need to define and pursue genuinely quality relationships according to the counsel of God And that means that we need to follow Paul's example. It won't look exactly the same. You won't be visiting Thessalonica here in a few days. You won't be coming to a Jewish synagogue somewhere and proclaiming the Gospel of Christ. Of course, our lives look different. Our callings are unique. But in following Jesus Christ, there is a certain orientation that we must embrace. A way of defining what a quality relationship is a way of pursuing it according to God's Word. We need this. We need to listen to Paul's example. And I don't think there are many places where it shines any more brightly than from a section in his first letter to the Thessalonian believers. And I invite you there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 17, the end of the chapter, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 17, we find here Paul longing to see the Thessalonians who are his glory and joy. Now as we enter into this text, let's remember to think about the relationship that he has to them that they have to him. First Thessalonians 2 and verse 17, we read, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Let's stop and put ourselves back in the scene just for a moment. Paul was called in a vision to abandon his plans to journey north and east through Asia and into the Roman province of Bithynia, the southern end of the Black Sea. Remember that vision where he was called across westward, across the Aegean Sea. Called into Macedonia or northern Greece. And there in Macedonia, Paul enjoyed two successful months of ministry in the city of Philippi. He then journeyed with Silas to Thessalonica, a prosperous port city of approximately 200,000 people. In Thessalonica, Paul's efforts were uniquely blessed. In very short order, there were Jews who came to Christ as Savior and Gentiles who came to Christ as Savior, and the church was growing rapidly day by day. The Jews became so jealous of Paul's success that they instigated riots in the city. And Paul felt perhaps the only thing that he could do to set the situation down a bit, to turn it down a few notches, was to remove himself from the city. And so he walks away and goes on a two and a half day journey to Berea. So think of Paul here proclaiming the gospel, knowing that he's following the will of God, seeing people respond, the thrill of his heart to see that response, then having to leave in order to... Deal with the situation and the riots that are taking place there. He speaks of this departure in verse 17 as being torn away. I was ripped away from you. Or the Greek actually is often translated to make one an orphan. It speaks of the acute mental anguish when he was forced to leave the Thessalonians. He did not want to do that. In fact, it says that he endeavored eagerly with great desire to see them face to face. He worked energetically to get back together with them. The word used here for desire is often used for the word lust. It's a strong word, epithumia. To see the Thessalonians was a longing that fueled fervent efforts to return to their side. We note the nature of this relationship. Don't miss it. He was not merely pleased to see them if he happened to get around to it, was he? Paul was intensely desirous of seeing them. He longed to be with them. There was a great passion and a zeal in his heart for these people. Verse 18 indicates that these longings went unfulfilled due to satanic opposition. Whether that was due to illness or political Resistance in Thessalonica, we're not sure. Maybe some other reason. We're not told, but the point is that Paul's heart was bound fast to these people. Do we understand anything of this situation? On human terms, do we understand the longing to be with someone from whom we've been separated? I go back in my life to my relationship with Beth. And I remember times before marriage. Some of the times that stick out the most are the times we were apart and the great longings to come back together and to see her again. And now, in the providence of God with four children and sometimes traveling overseas and on long trips to teach others the Word of God, there's that longing that I know of. And those moments stay in my mind when we come back and are reunited There's that natural yearning and that natural longing, what the Greeks would call storge love or eros love, romantic love, family love. There's that yearning of heart that you have for someone you miss. The Apostle Paul had very similar yearnings, but they were generated by agape love. They were generated by a desire to give away himself to these people, a longing to be a blessing to them, such that He endeavored with great yearning to be with them. Do you know those desires? We know those desires of being separated from someone and wanting to come back together. Do we know the intensity of those same kinds of desires when it comes to being with one another? When it comes to ministering to other believers in the faith? This was not something Paul just had for the Thessalonians. If we get that idea, of course, it's wrong. He speaks often in these terms. He says to the Roman believers in chapter 11 of that book, For I long to see you. He says the same to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.4. I long to see you. To the Philippians, he said, I yearn for you all in the affection of Christ Jesus. Let's notice verse 19 as we continue forward. For what is our hope? or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. The great intensity of this desire is seen in very profound words here. You are our glory and joy. You are the cause of our boasting. He longs for these people with a zeal that is hard to even express. But that longing is that he would stand before Jesus and boast in what Jesus had done to save these people through Paul's witness. He writes to them in a sense like a proud father, anticipating the introduction of his children to a king. And boasting in their goodness before the king. Boasting in their faith in Christ before Jesus. He longs for this day. And we have to stop and ask then, what fueled the deep, earnest, passionate relationship that Paul had with these believers? I think it is clearly his orientation. Paul oriented his focus not on who was like him and who liked him, nor upon the material pleasures of this world. Paul was focused on the reality of Christ's coming return and on the wonder of the transforming power of the gospel. That's what fuels this level of desire for others. Focus on these realities. Christ will come. Our days are passing. Focus on the reality of the transforming power of God. Paul was oriented toward these people such that they were his glory and joy, I think the key to it then is that his heart was bound to them because he was so enthralled with the grace of God that was operating in them. You know, I really don't think we're going to get any better than that. I don't think we're going to improve on that model. We can spend all our days trying to set up social structures to bind our hearts, and they are helpful. We have some of those as a church and use them, I think, with wisdom. We can spend all our days seeking out who is like us and who likes us, and that is very natural. But at the end of the day, nothing will so deepen the quality of our relationships as learning to see the grace of God working in one another's life and rejoicing in that person because of that grace. That may be someone within this assembly, it may be someone outside of this assembly, but it's someone to whom we link up, someone that we know and relate to on the terms of transforming power. We see grace and we're thrilled by it. I think really, as I analyze my own life in light of Paul's example here, I think it is true of me, and I'm sure that you would agree that we have too small of interests. Selfish interests that deprive us of such joys. So intense is Paul's desire to go to the Thessalonians, and so effective is Satan's hindrance of that desire, that Paul is forced to send Timothy on back to Thessalonica to find out about the faith of these people that he so loves. And in this report, we simply learn further what bound Paul's heart to the Thessalonians. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. The idea there is the pressure built so strongly, his desire to see them, to know of their faith, to see the grace of God working, that he couldn't hold up under the pressure any longer. And so in verse 2, he sent, we send Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. What an example he left them. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. I think the point is fairly clear. Paul could ill afford lose Timothy, but he does so out of love for the Thessalonians. Timothy's commission there at the end of verse 2 is to establish and exhort these believers in the faith. He's sent to build them up in the faith. Now notice verse 5 where we find Paul's concern. That's Timothy's mission. Paul's concern, for this reason when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What is his concern for them? That they would persevere in the faith. He knows that they can fall off the tracks of faith. And he's anxious to find out that they are staying on them. And what is his concern for himself? His success in the gospel ministry, which we considered last Sunday night. He wants to labor in such a way that is not in vain. That his labors would bear fruit in their lives, that they would persevere in the faith, and that He would be able to stand someday and say, these are my people before Jesus. And there's something going on here that's not of this world. There's something unique here. You know, I think, just to stand back for a moment longer, right at this point and to analyze Paul's heart, I believe it would be right to say that vibrant relationships always include a measure of anxiety. You test it with the people that you know, but I really think every vibrant relationship includes some measure of anxiety. There has to be some drama, some problem, some fear, some tension, some common enemy. Or the relationship is as dull and cold as unbuttered toast. you got to have something there. There's got to be some risk. Paul is not focused on the limp, who is like me and who likes me trajectory. He has far deeper and higher and broader concerns, and it's those concerns that bind him to people. There's great anxiety if if we're awake to it. Knowing that Satan is incessantly beating against the faith of God's people, that's high anxiety. Everywhere in the media, to the people that you relate to who are outside of Christ, wherever you find yourself in this world, Satan is banging hard against your faith. And that's true with everybody in this room and everybody outside of this place that we seek to minister to. Satan is alive and well, and he's seeking to beat up faith. He doesn't always do that by external outward attack. He doesn't always do that by attack at all. Many times it's by the slow drip of compromise, of simply falling asleep in the kettle, not realizing that you're about to boil. But He's out there. He's working. He is banging against the faith of the saints. There are eternal souls that are at stake, souls that live in the danger of falling away from the faith. I think one of the reasons that relationships are as dry and as cold, unbuttered toast in a local church is because we grow bored with performing little social dances with people. Dances in which the outcome is innocuous, meaningless. I would challenge you, by the grace of God and only He can accomplish it, but I would challenge you, lead a person to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Nurture that person along in the faith until they come into this assembly and are baptized as they stand for God and the intensity of your interest in this church and in them and in the relationship that you have will be deepened. There will be a quality of relationship that will keep you awake. It won't be a little social dance with no meaningful outcome, there will be an intensity to seek that that person not fall away from the faith. And you'll be breathing Paul's air. I know we can't make that happen, but we can labor to that end. We can be preparing our own hearts and lives to be in that place where we could have such anxieties. And we can be reaching out to people and allowing God's Word free course Grab a struggling believer. Someone that you, in prayer, identify as a person that you long to build up in the faith. Now, somewhere along the line, you might need to ask them if that's all right, But you know, you really don't. Ultimately, you can see where that relationship will take you and how far that person is willing to grow and to be pushed by you and to just leave it at that level. But go after people to build them up knowing that Satan is beating on their faith. Knowing that He is striving to derail us. Helping that person. And again, the intensity and orientation of the relationships that you have in this assembly will change. Because your focus will not be on who is like me and who likes me, but on is this person going to end up in heaven or hell. And on human terms, That's an issue that's an open book on every last one of us. By the grace of God, we can see the fruits of the Spirit in people's lives. But the reality of it is we don't know the future. We don't know where Satan will tear down the faith and pull someone so far away from the truth that they walk in apostasy. There's much at stake What we need to do is take up the challenge and see people in that light. Not doing these little innocuous social dances, but going after souls and hearts for the glory of God with intensity. How do you see your relationships to the people of this church? How do you see your relationship to the unbelievers that you interact with each day? I think the normal response is, well, that depends on how people relate to me. And of course, there's truth to that. There are people who just really don't ever want us to talk to them, and it's a little bit tougher then to relate to somebody like that. But you see, the orientation is normally, how are people relating to me? What vibes am I getting? What are they giving to me? What is it possible for me to give to them as we interact socially on this level? I think what we're seeing here is a biblical orientation that is so radically different. We should be filled with longing that everyone we see is growing in the faith. That's what should bind our hearts to them. And it really doesn't then make a whole lot of difference how they see me. I know that I have genuine, beautiful hopes for that person. And I long for them to walk in the faith. That's what matters. And we see this illustrated in Paul's life. As Paul's fulfillment as a man of God is hinged on the Thessalonians' faith, beginning in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we welcome to see you, for this reason He just can't even finish a sentence here. He's just all excited with the report that Timothy's brought back that the Thessalonians are indeed persevering in the faith. They're hanging in there. They're prospering under the persecution. Notice the first part of verse 6. He's brought us the good news of your faith and love. That's the good news. A word that Paul hijacks here for only one of two times in the Bible, normally reserved for the proclamation of the gospel. But he says, this good news has come to me. That you are walking in faith and love. Paul rejoices in Timothy's glowing report of their faith in God and love for God and for his people. And again, I ask of myself and of all of us do we know this kind of joy? Do we know what it is to thrill at the knowledge that someone we have influenced for Christ is walking with God? Is there someone in this church? Is there someone outside of this church who you have influenced for Christ? And is there a longing in your heart that they attain to the resurrection of the dead and persevere in the faith? Is there a face that comes to mind? Is there a person that you can say genuinely, honestly before God, I have longings for that person to stand? He is thrilled with their faith and love. The middle of verse 6, and Timothy reports to him that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. This is not a one-sided relationship. The Thessalonians also longed to see Paul. This was a rich and deep relationship in Christ that thrived in the context of persevering faith and love. It's the kind of relationship that tends to develop when there's that orientation. Verse 7, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. Paul's well-being was bound up in the spiritual prosperity of growing believers. He was suffering distress and affliction. But he was alive and well just to know that they were walking with God. And what is the means by which this comfort and life joy was realized? It was in the persevering faith of these Thessalonians. We live because you stand fast in the Lord. You get the sense there with Paul that that's all that matters. I'm at peace. I stand with joy because you are walking in the faith. Verse 9, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Paul was no Norwegian Lutheran, was he? He got excited about things. He got excited about people. His relationship with the Thessalonians brought him great joy, and he celebrates it. All the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray, verse 10, most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. What does he want to do? He wants to get right back with them and begin building them up in the faith. He can't wait to reunite with them, to encourage them in the word of God, to see them continue to grow. That's what drives him. The desire repeated from chapter 2 and verse 17. Why is it that Paul gets so excited about this? Again, some of you are probably lost. You'd probably flip the switch here. Well, that's Paul. He gets excited about that stuff because he's an apostle. It's his job, it's a thing that motivates him. He shares the gospel with people. I would say no. I mean, that's obviously all right. I would say he gets excited this way because he follows Jesus. He gets excited this way because the one, Jesus Christ, who lived as our example, got excited this way. There's an intensity there to win lost souls, to see them built up in the faith, and to see them growing and showing and evidencing the grace of God every day in their lives. This gives him that intensity. And in verses 11 through 13 there's an earnest prayer that seems to burst from his chest a prayer for the Thessalonians holiness you'll notice he's talking about what he wants to do when he gets with them and now he's talking about how he's doing it in abstention he's praying for them now verse 11 may our God and father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints Paul closes the section by reemphasizing that his heart is bound to them by this intense craving for their spiritual progress in holiness as they approach their accounting before Jesus Christ. This unites them. This defines the quality of their relationship with one another. I've hammered on this a little bit throughout, but I think we need to stop and consider it as we close. As we analyze a bit longer this letter and this section of it, the challenge we've got to overcome is this perceived gap between Paul the evangelist and us. That somehow chasing after souls and an intensity to see people stand belongs to the clergy. That's hogwash, it's not Bible truth. We are not apostles, but what stops us from intense concern for the spiritual progress of believers and the salvation of the lost is not owing to that. It's not calling that hinders us. It's our earthbound, self-centered affections and orientations. We're so taken up with self and so taken up with this earth that we really don't have the passions to be concerned about the eternal destiny and progress of others. It's not because we're not an apostle. It's because unlike the apostle Paul, we do not follow Christ with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. We get so comfortable. We get comfortable with one another's testimony, with one another's seeming walk in the faith. We get comfortable with the thought that the world rejects the gospel and there's so many unbelievers out there. And we become very naturally oriented to the world's who is like me and who likes me social framework. Every last one of us. Here is where we need to seek transformation. To think in terms of what God is doing to save and sanctify people in the context of this church. He is doing that. This church does not exist because of things that we have done. It exists because the Lord Jesus Christ has willed it to exist. That doesn't mean that we're doing all that we should. It doesn't mean that we can claim that this is the authenticating mark that Jesus is pleased with everything in our lives. But it is to say, we are here by His sovereign purposes. He has saved people by the gospel of Christ. He has transformed us. Those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, this means that God is at work here. His grace is being seen in individuals' lives, in your lives, by His grace and mine. And so we should pour out our lives in participation with the endeavors of God to define and pursue quality relationships biblically, to see what God is doing in the larger picture, and to pour our lives into that. Again, I think there's an objection that we need to overcome. For some, perhaps even more than others, you would say of me, I have no sense of social realism. So we're, we're never going to have any fun with anybody, ever eat a meal or go out somewhere or do anything that's enjoyable with anyone. We're just going to have this pure intensity toward whether or not people are walking in the faith. I don't think we should read it that way. I believe that when I am interested in a person's walk with God, I will do all kinds of things with them on a social level as God gives opportunity. But those social interactions should be read through the gospel of Jesus Christ, not seen as a side angle. Or what perhaps is more the problem, the gospel itself is seen as the side angle. We have been connected together through a church, and now we enjoy one another's company on a social level, doing the things that we do to connect as people and losing track with what's really going on. The idea is not to cancel and squash fun. The idea is to pursue genuine joy. And that joy is never going to come through innocuous social dances. The little things that we do to interact and spend time together that are going nowhere. Rather, that joy is going to come as we unite together in the work that God is doing and see one another as eternal souls with anxiousness seeking to discern who it is that's walking in the faith. Who it is that is demonstrating new levels of love in God. Who it is that's struggling with sin. Who it is that's under the temptation of Satan and about to be pulled down and tackled in the mud and left for dead. Oh, it's not to say we squash all fun and act like some sort of social misfits as we talk to each other and bang each other in the head with the Bible every single time we see each other. But it's to say that our whole orientation is transformed by what God is doing in this world, rather than narrowing in on my own navel at what is happening with me and how everyone else relates to me. There are so many ways to go forward, and we need to take simple baby-shuffling steps. But there are visitors who walk into our assembly virtually every week. People often that none of us knows. We have no idea what spiritual battle is going on in their life. I think we certainly try on an external level to be friendly and welcoming. We need to realize that all who come into this assembly are people in a faith struggle. Whether they don't know the Lord or whether they do is not, that, that doesn't affect that. There is a faith struggle. Do we realize that and realize that everyone who visits in our assembly needs to be met on that level and encouraged forward? Perhaps we offend somebody occasionally. We don't do it ungraciously, or we seek to be winsome, certainly. But how do we relate to those that are newcomers? How do we relate to those that are lost around us? There's a certain level of disconnect with this world if you orient your life to understand that everyone that you relate to who is an unbeliever is an unbeliever. That they are destined for a Christless eternity. That is going to change the way you live. It's going to change the level of comfort that you have in this world. I think we should bear that well and nobly as we shoulder that matter. But I don't think I can live in this world at utter peace. There are moments of peace. There are moments of rest. There are moments of great joy in the presence of other believers. But it never leaves my mind that the people who surround me are lost. That's got to temper the way we live in this world. It'll temper every conversation we ever have. How do we relate to those that we know are struggling in the faith? I realize a lot of times that's sort of like trying to get a dog out of a trap. It's a really nasty situation. Sometimes the people you're trying to help the most will bite the hardest. But really in the end, who cares? Why does that matter? So we get bit. Are there people struggling with sin, walking away from God? How can we winsomely win them? We should not spend time, I have no evidence that we ever do, but I I, I certainly hope that we do not spend our time talking behind people's backs and criticizing them for struggling in the faith. What we need to do is to develop an intensity to lift them up to encourage them forward. Yes, it is frustrating when people don't see the things you see because of God's grace upon your life. We thank God for His grace. We don't criticize them for not seeing it. We need to pick up the struggling. We need to take small steps. And perhaps in God's mercy, we have no idea, but perhaps in His mercy, as we split this assembly on Sunday mornings into two parts and create a lot more seats. By God's grace, may we take this orientation toward people and see this church as a spiritual hospital where people are pursued and brought, where we bring them in and where we are concerned about their spiritual walk with God and where our orientation to other people The quality of our relationships is not centered upon us and what we get, but is centered upon who God is and what He's doing. May our orientation be transformed to be soul shepherds who display intense care for the spiritual prosperity of God's people and the salvation of the lost, because we are growing to see the realities of God's grace in light of the coming return of Jesus Christ. He's coming. The time is passing quickly. We need to be busy getting ready. And we need to be busy getting one another ready. May that be what binds us together and creates a joy and a zeal to be with one another. Let's bow for prayer.